I'll be answering your questions on the Holy Spirit today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, this is Michael Brown. Welcome to the Friday broadcast of The Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. I won't be taking calls today. I solicited questions a few days back on Facebook, as I sometimes do. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube will solicit questions, sometimes on a specific subject, and then designated day to answer them. This is that day for those watching on Facebook and YouTube. Just picture my smiling face because we are audio only. All right. Don't post your questions now because I solicited these a few days ago on the S. Dr. Brown Facebook page. Another reason that you should be connected with us on that page. It's a great place to go. The moment an article of mine goes live at various sites, the moment a new video goes live, breaking news will be posted. Our team will also post memes and quotes and things like that. There's active discussion, tens of thousands of comments all the time from a wide variety of folks. So if you're not connect with us on Facebook. It's Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K, Dear Brown on Facebook. And of course, you can watch the show live every day. All right. I'm going to answer the questions in the order in which they came. If they're not relevant to the subject matter, I won't be answering them today. But here's the question that I posted. Let me get all the way up to it. And this is my question. Do you have a specific question about the working of the Holy Spirit today, about the Pentecostal charismatic movement? about my own beliefs in ministry in terms of the Spirit's power. Please post your questions here now, and I'll be recording answers to them today. Today is coming Friday, so I posted it several days ago. Uh, that means that I'll only see the questions posted here in the next few hours, so the sooner you post, the better. Also, if you ask a specific question about individuals or ministries, please do so in a Christian spirit. From what I've seen so far, folks co- uh, complied with those guidelines. All right, here we go. Scrolling all the way back down. Nelson and Crystal, thank you, thankful for your service. Could you please elaborate on the gift of the word of knowledge mentioned in 1 Corinthians twelve eight? What is it? What isn't it? All right, so there are a couple ways of looking at this. I'll give you my best understanding. Those in the Pentecostal charismatic movement often understand a word of knowledge to be where God reveals information, factual information about a situation or person that will be used to minister to them, demonstrate God's love, reach out to them in a personal way, uh, convict them of sin, demonstrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's distinguished from a word of wisdom, which would be a revelation given, a word given that would be a plan of attack, or here's a situation and here's how you address it. Uh, For example, what happened with Joseph in Egypt when he was a prisoner in Egypt and he was given interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams and then here's what to do based on those. That would be word of wisdom and word of knowledge would have been more, right, here's the information, say as Daniel got with a dream interpretation in in Daniel, the second chapter. So with word of knowledge, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. Years back, I was ministering to a small congregation meeting on a Saturday night, and the Holy Spirit was was moving powerfully, touching many lives, and it was a small meeting, everyone in there together, so you couldn't really get away from what was happening, and 
one young man was in the meeting and just with a mocking, skeptical look on his face the whole time. And, and he was obviously not a believer and was not taking seriously what was happening. And I knew that the Lord was powerfully touching people. So it was grieving me that, that he himself was mocking. So I just opened my heart to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, he's a pickpocket and shared more information with me. And I said, there's someone here. I, I said, uh, right before you came into this meeting, you picked someone's pocket. And before the service, you were boasting about what a good pickpocket you were. Well, the Lord knows exactly who you are. That was the gist of the message. The, the look went off his face completely. It's one of the more specific things that I ever heard uh, for someone. And the next day, the pastor called me and said, hey, Mike, what was that word about with that person? And I told him, he said, well, yep. He said, needless to say, he came in skeptical and left a whole lot different. So that would be an example of word of knowledge as Pentecostals, Charismatics commonly understand it. Many scholars understand it differently, biblical interpreters, as as a teaching given, a, a supernatural teaching that is given by the leading of the Spirit uh, to someone, uh, as opposed to a word of wisdom, which would be a, a wise teaching that is given. Now, it's possible. That's what it refers to. The question would be, why is it singled out as a gift in that regard, or, or a specific manifestation of the Spirit? But that's, that's how I've understood it, and many Pentecostals and Charismatics have. Others have seen it differently. Uh, Antoine is wondering about John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments and I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter, actually should be counselor, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Oneness Pentecostals try to interpret that to say that this is showing that Jesus is the spirit because he dwells with them, will be in them. Actually, this is one of the best verses to make plain that Jesus is not the father, son, and spirit. Rather, the father is distinct from the son who is distinct from the spirit. But yes, this is a wonderful promise from the Lord Jesus himself. And in John 7, we read that the rivers of living water that will flow out of our being, that speaks of the Holy Spirit. And John seven thirty nine says that he was speaking of the Spirit who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I believe I'll be, I'll be talking about that some more on Monday's broadcast as we talk a little bit more about the importance of the ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament. But key thing to understand here is that this is a wonderful promise. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. He leads us. He guides us. He teaches us. He instructs us. He equips us. He empowers us. We fellowship with him. We have the witness of the Spirit in our lives. I think often we downplay the importance of the Spirit's ministry. Put aside healing, miracles, prophecy. Put that aside. How important is the Holy Spirit in your life? What role does the Holy Spirit play in your life? It's a major question to ask given how much emphasis there's put on this in the New Testament. All right, just looking at at questions here that are not directly related to the subject matter of today. Alvin asks, how would you answer someone who asks, what's the difference between personal revelation, for example, personal words, and the Bible? Yeah, great question, and one that many non-charismatics have. So the Bible is the Bible. It is God's eternal, infallible word. It, It is the one and only 
authority to which we all must bow. We don't test the Word of God. The Word of God tests us. We must rightly understand what's written. We must rightly apply what's written. But it is God's Word, infallible, inerrant. And therefore, we submit to what God said. It is His universal Word for all people worldwide. Personal revelation is just that. Lord, should I take this job I'm really conflicted about it. It would mean working extra hours and traveling more, but it will help our family at this critical time. But it give me less family time. Do you, want us, do you want me to take this job or not? Lord, lead me, guide me. And then in prayer, you have a distinct sense, don't take it, don't take it. Something else will open up. Okay, well, that's not the Bible. That's not doctrine. That's not telling us who Jesus is. That's not a universal word for all people. Even if in prayer, you felt the Lord showed you that a particular thing is going to happen, and it comes to pass. So it's a prophetic word. That's not the Bible. That's not binding on other people. That's not final revelation or authority. So prophecy, revelation we believe we receive, cannot add to the Bible, take away from the Bible, detract from the Word of God in any way. Nor can we tell someone else, well, God told me this, therefore you have to do thus and such. No, it's only the Word, the Bible, that has that authority. Personal revelation is just that, must be tested, and all must be subjected to the Word of God. Uh, Adrian, Kabbalah is being promoted in seer circles, so certain prophetic circles, as a legitimate pursuit for Christians. What's your take on it? Uh, Totally disagree. Totally disagree. Uh, Look, Kabbalah is presented in the pop form that, that Madonna helped popularize. And then there are aspects of Kabbalah that are pointed to as, as demonic and things like that, which there certainly are. And there can be exaggerated views of Kabbalah as, as if it is calling for Jews to take over the world and stuff like that, which is really not what Kabbalah is, is about. But Jewish mysticism, as expressed in Kabbalah, is not a source of spiritual revelation for Christians. It is not a source of spiritual insight for followers of Jesus. I know some claim that, well, this opened up this prophetic truth to them, or, or this opened up this messianic truth. It's not to say that there's not an interesting saying, or quote, or concept, or passage that we can't draw on, maybe as a bridge to reach Jewish people with the gospel, and say, hey, you have this concept in your own literature. Let me point to, to what we believe, and, and let me show you how it, it is the truth on our side, something like that. But no, I, I absolutely do not recommend Kabbalah for spiritual growth uh, or something to legitimately pursue to better understand God. No, I, I see it as a false system. All right. Um, Jerry asks this, in retrospect, concerning the prophetic words you've heard throughout the decades, would you generalize that most preachers giving them are authentic or fake and know they're fake or misled, thinking they've heard from God when they really didn't? Okay. Those leaders, ministers that I've been around that have delivered prophecies that they knew were fake, in other words, the the whole thing is just some game they're putting on, I don't know that I've I've ever worked with anyone that did anything like that, meaning, you know, stood side by side in meetings or things like that. I've definitely seen stuff on TV that I considered absolutely fake. There are definitely people out there that are charlatans. I don't I don't question that. But I would say the vast, 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 vast majority of prophetic words I've heard have been delivered by people who were sincere 
who really thought that they they had a message from the Lord that they should b- deliver. And I would say that some of them have been genuine and powerful and awe-inspiring and God-glorifying that just gets you sometimes crying before the Lord, weeping in his presence because of his reality uh, and the intimacy of that word, or laughing for joy because Jesus is alive, how amazing. Uh, you know, that's, that's wonderful when it happens. I would say others have definitely been people delivered by people who have been misled. They thought the Holy Spirit was speaking through them, and he wasn't, which is why everything must be tested. And then many others were just very general, maybe the majority so general that you don't really know if they did much good, but they certainly didn't do harm and that the general truths they were stating are, are true. And maybe the, the smallest percentage have been these absolutely amazing, mind-boggling, oh my God, what an incredible word from the Lord. And the majority of, of ones that are true words are, are confirming general scriptural truths. But yeah, definitely seen people misled, and I'm sure there are charlatans out there. Thankfully, there haven't been people I've worked with. All right, we'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Taking your questions that were submitted a few days ago on Facebook regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. So again, no calls today. Don't post new questions. We're answering questions that were previously submitted. Travis, I've heard your exegesis of Matthew seven fifteen in regard to calling out false teachers. If I heard correctly, you are very hesitant to call out false teachers. You believe they will be seen as teaching doctrines completely contrary to Christianity from the start. I greatly admire your determination to bring unity to the body. However, when I read 1 Timothy 1 and see Paul calling out Hymenaeus and Alexander as teachers who have shipwrecked their faith, I have a question for you. To have a faith that is shipwrecked would imply that both Hymenaeus and Alexander were once in the ship, correct? As, the, as in they were once teaching sound doctrine, but for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. 1 Timothy 1.6 With that being said, compared to your understanding of Matthew 7.15, do false teachers have to bring false teachings off the bat, or can they turn to false teachings later on? All right, I want to clarify a few things, Travis, as well. First, uh, Matthew seven fifteen and following is regarding false prophets, not false teachers, just to be technical there. Second Peter 2, 1 warns against false teachers. Second Corinthians 11, beginning verse 13, warns against false apostles. So the different categories, false teachers, false apostles, false prophets. That's one thing. Second thing, the point that I emphasize is the use of the term false prophets or false teachers or false apostles. False apostles, according to, to Paul in Second Corinthians 11, are servants of Satan. False teachers, according to Second Peter 2, bring in damnable heresies. False prophets, according to Matthew 7, are wolves in sheep's clothing. So, when hypercritics want me to call it this one or that one or that one is a false prophet or is a false teacher, if I believe the person is a brother in the Lord, but teaching something erroneously, I won't brand them a false teacher. 
or if I believe that this is a, a true Christian, but they have prophesied falsely, they, they brought a word that wasn't a real prophecy, I'm not going to brand them a false prophet. I'll say they prophesied falsely, or I'll say I don't recognize them as a prophet. So I'm just trying to use the terminology the way it is consistently. But of course, I'll call out false teaching, and specifically, and by name, absolutely. And I'll brand someone a false teacher if my understanding is that they are outside the faith, like a Matthew Vines teaching that, that homosexual practice is compatible with Christianity and, and doing so as a church-going man. That I will call out and brand that person a false teacher. You know, the Mormons are false teachers and false apostles and, and things like that. But if it's someone that I understand is a believer and yet they have certain false teaching. Look, I believe that cessationists who deny the gifts and power of the Spirit for today, I believe that's false teaching, but I welcome them as brothers in the Lord. However, in specific answer to your question, yes, people can start in the Lord, start as true believers and apostatize, and now introduce false damnable doctrine uh, to the damnation of their own souls as, as well. So yes, they can start in the faith and then leave the faith. Um all right, again, some questions are not directly related to my uh, question for today about the ministry of the Spirit for this hour. Jenny, I love your ministry, Dr. Brown. I listen to the line of fire often. I hope you're listening today, Jenny. My question is, do you think people can be baptized in the Holy Spirit and never speak in tongues? Yes, I do. I believe they could speak in tongues. In other words, I believe that being clothed and empowered with the Spirit, that they could speak in tongues if they understood that and believed that. But no, I don't see it as absolutely necessary that someone speaks in tongues as a result of the baptism in the Spirit. Now, let me say a few things, and this answers some other questions that that folks have asked about my views of the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, a, A few distinctives. Number one, I hold to a Pentecostal beliefs that the baptism of the Spirit is an empowerment subsequent to salvation. So at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. We are now uh, led by the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and obey the will of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Our bodies become the temple of the Spirit. This is uh, upon salvation. But I understand there to be something subsequent, an empowerment called the baptism of the Spirit which takes place after salvation. Now, it could take place at the same time, but normally takes place afterwards. Now, that's a distinctly Pentecostal belief that many of my friends and colleagues would reject, and they would say, you're baptized in the Spirit upon salvation, that the indwelling of the Spirit is is the same as the baptism of the Spirit in terms of timing. It all happens when you're saved, and everything is there. We just have to grow into it. I'm not going to quibble over that, and I fully respect that difference, all right? I would simply say, if you've received the fullness of the Spirit in terms of the baptism of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit, then show it. Now, we don't have the fullness of the Spirit the way Jesus had the fullness of the Spirit, obviously. We're we're all individuals, all right? He operated the fullness of the Spirit's power in every way. But uh, if you believe you received the baptism of the Spirit on salvation, great, just demonstrate it. Let's see the same things that, that Paul spoke about as being normative uh, for those filled with the Spirit, those anointed with the Spirit, empowered with the Spirit. Let's just see the same things happening. Now, if you believe, as I do, that there is a subsequent baptism in the Spirit, uh, is the initial sign always speaking in tongues? No, not to my understanding. It is the most common. 
It is the one spoken of repeatedly in Scripture. It is the one that has accompanied the phenomenon of the baptism of the Spirit on a very regular basis for the last 150 years or so. Uh, But I don't believe you can say it is always the initial outward evidence. It seems clear that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, that we speak. The Holy Spirit comes on us and we speak. We could speak prophetically. We could speak in, in new tongues. But there will be utterance. There will be a speaking. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord's on me because he's anointed me to preach. This is uh, something very common. The Spirit came on the prophet and he spoke. So when the Spirit comes on us, we're empowered. There's that initial speaking out. But it could be prophetic words. It could be expressed in other ways. In, in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, they speak in new languages. In Acts 8, something tangible happens. We're not told what. In Acts 10, they speak in tongues. In Acts 19, they speak in tongues and they prophesy. Uh, so the Assemblies of God, for example, would teach that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. I would say it's the most common evidence, outward evidence. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh Let's see, Howard. No one is perfect scriptural understanding. How much doctrinal error is too much goes on from there. Listen, there is nothing explicitly quantitative. How much error is too much? Any error is bad. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But what I can say is in a qualitative way, when that error causes us to deny fundamental scriptural truths necessary for salvation or fundamental scriptural truths that alter our understanding of who God is, or fundamental scriptural truths that that lay out how we are to live, and those things are now altered through our error, then then that is critical life and death error. Um, Kevron, did Jewish exorcists cast out demons in Acts 19, verses 10 through 20? Does this prove that non-believers can use Jesus' name as a magic spell to cast out demons? Some cessationists would claim the scripture shows deliverance today is fake since all the sign gifts have ceased with the death of the apostles. Okay, it is an absolutely unsupportable, completely unscriptural position that the sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, miraculous healings ceased with the death of the apostles. It is 100% unsupportable scripturally, and I will debate that with any qualified theologian or academic, and it is 100% false historically. We have documentation for centuries of church history of miraculous confirmations and prophecy and God working, and we, and we have millions of confirmations around the world to this day, and many of them carefully documented. Um, but as to the question of demons being driven out in Jesus' name, no, demons are not going to leave unless the person driving them out is in right relationship with Jesus. And that's what we learned from Acts 19, when the Jewish exorcists tried to drive demons out in Jesus' name, but they didn't know him. They said, Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demons said, Jesus, I know, I know about Paul, but who are you? Uh, so no, it doesn't doesn't work like that. Just as some magic spell or charm. Now, were there Jewish exorcists who were not followers of Jesus? There, there were in the ancient world uh, because of authority that they understood they had from God. But ultimately, that would cease over a period of time as the revelation of the gospel came. Those who rejected the gospel now would be outside of God's grace and empowerment. But at the time of Jesus, yes, there were exorcists. 
uh, Jewish exorcists who were not yet followers of Jesus. But once you come to a point of rejecting him, then that divine authority would cease. Uh, let's see. Mike, why was I banned from your YouTube comments? Irrelevant. Hey, Mike, if you were wrongly banned, please write to us and, and let us know. Normally someone would be banned if they uh, slander other people, if they uh, post like blatantly anti-Semitic stuff or, you know, racist stuff, something like that, or if they just took over threads with hundreds and hundreds of the same posts and things like that. Um, but otherwise, we welcome different opinions. So if you think you've been wrongly banned, please let us know. The main question, how can Pentecostalism have the Holy Spirit when its founder, Charles Fox Parham, was a Klansman? Acts 2 says, with one accord, told them, uh, Parham told the black man to sit outside, uh, see the book of James and Torah, and putting a stumbling block before the physically bind, his cra- sit outside his cracked door. Can you, how can you assert that they're one and the same? Well, first, Parham's not the founder of Pentecostalism. The Holy Spirit is, and we take things from the Word of God. And secondly, there were people in modern times filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues long before Charles Parham came on the scene. It just was not as widely reported. And thirdly, uh, Parham was going against the racism of his day by even letting a black man uh, sit outside his uh, doors for a class. But it did reflect the racism of the day for sure. And the last thing I want to do is defend everything about Parham. But we go back to the Bible uh, for Pentecost, and Pentecost in modern times predates Charles Parham. So easy answer to that question. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. My joy and honor to spend this time together with you. Thank you so much, those of you who listen, watch on a regular basis. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. It's, it's my joy to, to be of service and the many kind comments you send in, the many notes of appreciation. We appreciate it. Pray for us, stand with us, support us, help us to reach many, many more people. I, I burn every day of my life to see God glorified and to see more lives touched and changed. And, and what would have been something very gratifying years ago, what would have been kind of a ceiling just becomes like the floor for the next level. We're we're hungry to see God do more. So pray for us, stand with us and join in together. I'm not taking calls today. I'm answering questions that I solicited a few days ago on Facebook. So sit back, enjoy the broadcast. I asked specifically if our listeners, viewers, friends had questions about the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. So those are the questions that I am focused on. John, general thoughts on the Catholic Church and on the charismatic Catholic renewal. All right. I've, I've addressed questions in general about Catholicism in the past. Obviously, I do not believe in distinctives that set Catholicism aside, say, from Protestant evangelicalism. I believe that there are major, major errors within key teachings of the Catholic Church. Nonetheless, I believe that there are born-again, saved Catholics who do hold to the true gospel in the midst of Catholic traditions that would go in another direction. What about the Catholic charismatic renewal? Uh, let me just be absolutely candid. I do believe that there are many who have been powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit and that true believers within the Catholic Church have 
come to to receive the Spirit and speak in tongues, and that for many of them, it's genuine and beautiful. But I have many questions about the larger Catholic charismatic renewal, because in my mind, that renewal would also lead someone out of Catholicism, or in particular, out of the errors of Catholicism. So I welcome my born-again Catholic charismatic brothers and sisters, and you you may be sitting there frowning as you're listening to me, but uh, that's why I'm not Catholic. All right, um, let's see. So Steve, I, I answered this previously, but just to state it again, you hold to the Pe- Pentecostal distinctive that speaking in other tongues is the initial evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. I say it's the most common evidence, and I do hold to the Pentecostal distinctive of a subsequent baptism in the Spirit, a subsequent empowering after salvation. But I do not hold to the strict Pentecostal view that tongues is the only initial evidence of the baptism in the Spirit. Um, Theme, I still do not understand the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. God, yes, Jesus, yes, Holy Ghost, not really. He doesn't speak to us, gives teachings to the Lord. Can you please really give us who the Spirit is? Thank you, brother. Well, he does teach us. He does direct us. He does guide us. Uh, According to the scripture that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Uh, According to the Holy Scripture, the, the Spirit leads us into all truth. According to the scripture, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I mean, think of it, intimate communion with the Holy Spirit. So the easiest way to speak of these things, and there's always mystery and majesty in God, but to me, the easiest way to speak of them would be this, that the Father is the source of all things, the one from whom all things come, but he is hidden in his glory. He works everything through the Son who reveals him to us ultimately in bodily form. And then he works among us invisibly by the Spirit who points to Jesus, who then glorifies the Father. So we're speaking of God in each case, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but each with specific aspects and functions and attributes. But the Spirit, hidden in his work in terms of not visible, and you can have a manifestation of the Spirit in the Old Testament, like the cloud of glory or something like that. But the Spirit is not revealing God in visible form as the Son is ultimately through Jesus. But he is working among us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. If, if I was in prayer and felt a distinct word from the Lord, you know, for example, the Lord saying, okay, go to this country and minister to these people, uh, then I would say the Spirit led me. The Spirit spoke to me. And, and when I have that deep sense of communion with God, it's communion with the Spirit. You say, well, do I not say Jesus and just talk to Jesus? Of course I do. Do I not go to the Father and just lean on the Father? Well, of course I do. And yet there's a unique aspect of that, the Spirit's presence. We speak of the communion of the Spirit. All right, let's see. Um, what is the place of apostles and prophets post the apostolic age? Do these offices continue? All right, so this is always a very controversial question. So uh, according to the New Testament, there are the 12 apostles. They are distinct. 
and to be an apostle or among the first 12, uh, you had to be an eyewitness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you played a unique role, so unique that the names of the 12 apostles are the names of the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. There will never be uh, others like the 12 apostles. And then you can add Paul in, who speaks of himself as, as an unexpected addition to the group. You know, some would argue that he was God's intended 12th apostle instead of Matthias, who was designated apostle in Acts 12. But e- either way, you have these unique ministries. Paul did not see the d- death and resurrection of Jesus, wasn't with him the entire time of his ministry as the other apostles were. So he's unique in that regard as well. But the New Testament also calls others apostles. For example, Barnabas in Acts the 14th chapter I think it's Acts 14, 14. It just says Barnabas and Paul, themselves apostles. And then it speaks of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, 25 as your apostle. And there's some others in the New Testament who are referenced as apostles. So based on that, uh, I say, yeah, it's not just the 12 or the 12 and Paul that are called apostles. There are others who are called apostles in the New Testament. And according to Ephesians 4, uh, the risen Jesus has appointed apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry, the edification of of the body, until we come into the unity of the faith, until we come into full maturity in the Son of God. That has not yet happened. So I see apostles and prophets as something that are ongoing through church history, right up until today. I don't see that they were always recognized as such, but I see them functioning in that way. So apostles function in a pioneering way, a planting way, a foundation-laying way, often a fathering way. I look at people that started church movements, missions movements, the John Wesleys, the Hudson Taylors of the world, my friend Yesupadam in India with Love and Care Ministries, which has planted thousands of churches in tribal regions and started ministries, powerful, life-changing ministries in numerous other countries. I look at him as an apostolic leader. So many would just not have that name or title, but they function in that regard. They may be city fathers where where others, uh, leaders in the city, recognize them as a pioneer or a planter or a father. And then prophets are not bringing additional scripture. R- remember, there were New Testament prophets operating in the gift of prophecy operating and, re- and, and references to, to prophets after the, uh, after the days of the apostles for centuries and prophecies, church leaders speaking about that, yet they weren't adding to the Bible. So prophecy is a word from the Lord with specific application, time, place that must be tested by Scripture and tested by other prophetic people. The Bible is the eternal, infallible, once-for-all Word of God that is binding on all people. We don't test the Bible. The Bible tests us. Um, What is declaring? Is it commanding God, and is it okay? Uh, No, we don't command God. There is a a verse in the book of Isaiah that is sometimes interpreted as if we are to command God and that God is saying, hey, you tell me what to do and I'll, I'll do it. No, 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 absolutely not. We do not command God. We submit to God. We reverence God. We honor God. We obey God. We bow down to God. He commands. We obey. Can we declare? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, The scriptures are filled with declaration. Declaration of the faithfulness of God. Declaration of the goodness of God. Declaration of the promises of God. 
and 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 prophetic declaration that thus and such will happen. So I'm all for that. I'm all for systematic declaring of the truth of the Word of God. So on a daily basis, we confess truths about who God is, truths about what He has promised us. I'm, I'm all for making faith declarations as we feel moved on. Uh, for example, if, if I was in a situation and, and it was kind of a life and death situation and it, it was very difficult and I just felt absolutely sure that, that victory was going to come and I declare it, I, I, I'm declaring now in Jesus' name that victory will come in this situation. Or, you know, times praying over, over uh, couples that couldn't have children. And, and, and knowing that faith was, feeling faith as I prayed and said, you're going to have a child within a year from now. You know, things like that. Or, you know, if, if, if we are convinced that the Holy Spirit has given us that witness, then we speak those things. Otherwise, we must be very careful lest we, we trivialize God, we trivialize faith in the eyes of other people. We, we make a mockery of God and his truth. All right, but we do not command God. Um, Valdemar, why did you visit Benny Hinn? Do you agree with his ministry? I was asked to be on a show years ago and took the invitation to reach his audience and talk about the real Messiah and talk about hypergrace. Uh, unfortunately, the show I did on hypergrace never aired. If I had known that would be the case, I may not have gone on in the first place. But it, it may have been a mistake anyway. Uh, going on the show raised many questions among many fine people, um, uh, along with gave a lot of fuel to the critics. So I, I made a judgment call. I took the invitation thinking that it would be a good thing to do. But I said subsequently, uh, perhaps it wasn't. Uh, but with with uh, life in general, sometimes you make the uh, good decisions, sometimes you don't. That being said, uh, no, there are many things in his ministry over the years that I would not agree with. Um, the The prosperity gospel, uh, false prophecies that were given, things like that. Now, hopefully he's repented of some of that error, uh, in which case I rejoice. That's that's good news. That's wonderful news. And I know there are errors he taught in the past that he did uh, repent of. That's good news as well. All right. Uh, I don't have time to get into another question, but there's a fascinating one from Yvette that we'll do on the other side of the break. Let me encourage you, friends, to join our support team. With your help, just a dollar a day, a dollar a day or more, not only do we pour back into you with free resources, free classes, free videos on demand, I mean, a ton of stuff, discounts in our online bookstore, discounts on our Israel trip, we pour back into you in many, many different ways. But you have the joy of knowing that you're storing up treasure in heaven and helping us reach a whole range of people we did not be able to reach without your help. Go to AskDrBrown.org. AskDrBrown.org. Click on Donate Monthly Support. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to the Line of Fire. Michael Brown coming your way audio only today. I'm answering your Facebook questions that were submitted a few days back. So don't submit new ones now. I'm not answering new questions coming in, but questions that were submitted some days ago, specifically regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit today and what I believe in terms of that. By the way, by the way, you can 
join me on Monday, God willing, where we'll be opening up the scriptures on the subject of Sola Scriptura and therefore charismatic. I think you will enjoy it. I hope you've been enjoying the guest hosting through this week. All right, here's a question from Yvette. How do you see Donatism active in the acceptance or rejective of the Pentecostal charismatic movement along with the Toronto Blessing and the Brownsville Revival? I'm curious about your views both on the critics and supporters of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity and the revival movements and Donatist leanings. Okay, so uh, Donatism, if you go to gotquestions.org, which is a great website, by the way, for biblical questions, although I find it weak on charismatic Pentecostal issues, but great in many other ways. Uh, The question, what is Donatism? Answer, Donatism was a heretical sect of Christianity that challenged the established church in the fourth century as Catholicism was on the rise. Donatism, which began in North Africa, taught that Christians were called to asceticism and personal purity, and that holiness was proved in one's faithfulness and enduring persecution. Those whose faith wavered under threat of death were impure and not worthy of being members of the church. The Donatists considered theirs as the only true church and refused to acknowledge ordinances administered in other churches. All right, so how do I see it in terms of acceptance or rejection of the Pentecostal charismatic movement? Um, All right, as, as best as I understand the question, let me say that on the one hand, there can often be an extreme reaction when the Holy Spirit moves in renewal and reformation. So, for example, you may be part of a Lutheran church that still preaches the gospel. You know, some have gone apostate. And, and there's a renewal movement within the church. And then, as a result of that renewal movement, you, you reject the, the Lutheran churches in general say, well, that's the organized church, that's organized religion, and, and we are part of the new thing. Now, we understand that the Reformation movement originally was to reform Catholicism and then broke away as something new, saying that Catholicism had gone apostate and broke away with something new. But it often happens during times of renewal that you reject, quote, the establishment or the traditional church, or organized religion. And that can be very dangerous. Just because you've been renewed, just because you've been touched, just because you've been filled, doesn't mean that the rest of the body is apostate. It just may mean that you need a renewal, or it may mean that other parts need renewal, but they're still parts of the body. And when it came to Toronto Blessing and Brownsville Revival, both operated in a wide sense within the wider body. In other words, neither one said that they were the true church or the only movement or anything like that. And even though the Toronto Blessing had been put out of the Vineyard Church, they worked widely with pastors and churches in in Canada and abroad. And the Brownsville Assembly remained an Assembly of God church. Uh, So... It, it still worked within the larger Pentecostal charismatic movement and welcomed believers from churches all around the world in different denominations. If they were born again, they were they were part of the body. Um, yes, there were strong emphases, emphases on personal holiness, and often with renewal movements, there's prayer and fasting, but it was never viewed as the the proof of salvation in terms of asceticism, in terms of fasting or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, putting an emphasis on holiness and saying that holy living will be a true fruit of the gospel. Yeah, you better believe that was a major emphasis. Brownsville, that's what I can speak to having been there. And that would be in keeping with biblical renewal movements throughout history. They're always going to emphasize holiness because God calls us to holiness. As far as uh, critics, uh, I would not look at it as a Donatist type thing, but the critics that reject it, what was happening, say in Brownsville, and said it you know, wasn't the true church, 
they were just ignorant, ignorant of what God was really doing, ignorant of what the scripture said about the working of the spirit, ignorant of church history and how God moved in renewal. Some very sincere, I love the Lord, but were misguided in their criticism and others whose criticism was anything but ethical. Uh, let's see. Larry, do you believe that the fivefold ministry is still active and applicable in our present times and until the Lord comes? Yes, as I answered earlier in the broadcast. Those who are calling themselves prophets and apostles without a church, are they real? Uh, some are, some are not. Uh, but if they are not related to a local body or if they are not part in an active way of a larger church movement with accountability in their lives, uh, then I, I question the the rightness of what they're preaching or teaching. If the Holy Spirit can be poured out on every man and woman and can empower them, what can stop a woman from being called by God to serve as a pastor or other roles? Well, the thing is that we're still distinct. In other words, the Holy Spirit will never call a male to give birth to a child. Uh, the Holy Spirit does not call a Gentile to be a Jew or a Jew to be a Gentile. I mean, we're, we, we still have distinctives. So I believe God can use a woman uh, as a pastor— and I believe he does in different settings, but it's not the ideal or the norm according to Scripture. Um, Tony, I know that you were deeply involved in the Brownsville Revival, so if you had to give any advice for someone looking to create a culture from the ground up in their ministry and leadership team of spirit empowerment, charismatic gifts, etc., what would it be and why? Looking to avoid some unnecessary pitfalls. Uh, for information, I'm a classical Pentecostal in theology, assemblies of God, but don't often feel so in practice. All right, number one, I'd still make the main things the main things, is with any gospel ministry. So lifting up Jesus, being grounded in the Word of God in prayer, uh, reaching out to the lost. I would always make those things foundational, building community within the body. You know, the, you make the main things the main things. But specifically, in terms of spirit empowerment, I would be emphasizing the importance of that scripturally. I would be making room for it in every service, in worship, having an environment where we're open to the moving of the spirit, always having time for prayer, having a, an outlet for the gifts of the spirit. I would periodically preach on these things so it's in front of the congregation. I would stir our hearts with examples of what God's done in the past, and I would remind us of our dependency. In other words, as we go out to evangelize, as we pray for the sick, to say, hey, there's more. There's more that God wants to do. And then use the power of testimony. Uh, emphasize when God does amazing things. Share that. Let it be known to, to others. Build faith through it. And of course, make it foundational that you preach on the baptism in the Spirit and that you believe in it and that you pray for people to be filled with the Spirit. Um, Stephanie, I'm assuming you believe in the concept of prayer language, Holy Spirit praying through us in our private prayer life. Do you believe we need it on a daily basis if we have it? I've been told to practice it daily, but honestly don't want to make a gig of it. And so far, I just kind of wait for a strong internal prompting to use it. Uh, Stephanie, Obviously, you have your own relationship with the Lord, and it's important that you walk in fellowship with God and and do what feels right in your relationship with Him. Uh, I pray in tongues a lot. Uh, there's rarely a day that goes by that if I spend any time in prayer, of quality time at all, that I'm not going to be praying in tongues as well. 
but it flows very naturally. Uh, what I found and discovered as a new believer was that when I would pray in tongues for longer periods of time, that I was tremendously edified, that I would come into real uh, harmony with the Lord in, in, in my mind as well, that meditating on Scripture, I'd get insight that uh, the, as I would then go from there to pray in English, my prayers in English were all the more effective. And if there's ever a time where I'm really setting myself aside to break through to hear God in certain areas, then I'll be, I'll be praying in the Spirit to join my spirit in deeper communion with God and to bring my mind into a better place of submission before God. And then out of that, maybe praying in tongues for an hour or two, out of that then begin to, to pray in English. But you you do what feels appropriate and good in your own heart before the Lord. But if you've never prayed in tongues for an extended period of time, I encourage you uh, to do that. Let's see. Uh, all right. What are my views on eternal security? Not directly related to the question about the ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Uh, so go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and just look up eternal security or once saved, always saved. But since I just raised the question... Uh, I absolutely trust the Holy Spirit's keeping power and never, ever, ever worry that I'm going to lose my salvation because God can't keep me or won't keep me. But I do believe that any of us have the power to walk away from the Lord, and we could choose to forfeit our salvation. Um, Justin, uh, I've now changed to believing that there's no biblical proof that the gifts have ceased. Good job. However, what about those who are claiming apostle or apostolic ministry? And those who are prophets and their prophecy are about the chiefs winning and other stuff. The prophecies I see in Scripture usually are regarding a change in people's actions to turn to the Lord. Uh, so I, I've discussed earlier in the broadcast about apostolic ministry, but let me just say this. Don't let anybody ever bring you under their authority because they, they say, I'm an apostle, you have to submit to me. Uh, if, if there's a relationship that develops and someone has a, a leadership gift that you respect, that's one thing. But don't let anyone ever try to manipulate you or put you under their authority by saying they're an apostle. As for prophetic ministry, what we have to look at is the overall fruit. I mean, the, the word about the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl was that that would be a, a, a foretaste or a portent that God was setting out apostolic, quote, Chiefs, and, and that an end-time revival was near. All right, so if it's just a prophecy about who's going to win a game, no, unless it ties in with this will be a sign of thus and such, or this will happen in this way for this purpose. No, it's not just going to be about trivial information. There must be something God-glorifying, life-changing, pointing us to the Word, pointing us to God, pointing us to repent, something fruitful to come out of it. All right, friends, we're out of time. Back with you on Monday. Check out AskDrBrown.org for tons of resources.